If you have your Bibles open, turn to 2 Peter. And I think, in a good way, the 2 Peter may prove to be an uncomfortable book for us. 2 Peter may prove to be an uncomfortable book. It may, may be unsettling. See, 2 Peter reveals that some who call themselves Christians, who identify as believers, who are confident that they've been saved, will fall away. 2 Peter 2 verse 20 talks about some of these. It says, for if, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by all appearance they look to be saved, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Second Peter becomes uncomfortable when Peter challenges you to make sure that you are not one of those who are going to fall away. Make sure that you are not one of those who are going to fall away. We see that in 2 Peter 3, verse 17, and I'm going to be jumping around a lot. It'll be mostly in 2 Peter. As we enter upon studying this book, I want you to get a, 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 a sense of the whole book. 2 Peter 3, verse 17, he says, Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. There's a danger of falling from your steadfastness. 2 Peter 1, verse 10, going back to the first chapter. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. What a fascinating idea that you can make certain about God's choosing of you. 2 Peter 3, verse 14, if you can uh, put up with me jumping back again. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So here Peter's talking about diligence, about our steadfastness, about making certain of God's election of us. See, in this book, Peter presents two different ways of being a Christian. There are those who fall away, and we see in chapter 2. That's the way of the false prophet. Peter ends chapter 2 talking about and a proverb of the dog returning to his vomit. If you've ever had a dog, you know that they do that. It's disgusting. Those who return to their past lives, that's one way of being a Christian. But then there's the other way, those who grow. It's the way of those who have true knowledge of Jesus Christ. Those who grow in grace and knowledge. And this book can be unsettling because we may like to think that there's a third way. We may be more comfortable thinking that there's a third option of those who don't grow, but who don't fall away. Those who don't grow, but who don't fall away. But there's no third option like that in 2 Peter. There's only a warning to anyone who thinks that they're in that third option. 2 Peter doesn't give us that option. The stakes are huge. God's people grow. The living grow. And the dead don't. And so Peter's challenge for us who are in Jesus Christ, who have put their hope in him, who have come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, is to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. To make your calling and election sure. To thrive. To make every effort to be diligent. Now, unlike Peter's first letter, 
Peter doesn't specifically say to whom he's writing. He does say in 2 Peter 3, verse 1, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says that, that this is a second letter I'm writing. Now, we can't be certain is the second letter to the same audience as 1 Peter is. Most commentators think so. But we really can't be certain because in, the, in his first letter, he, he says uh, that he's writing to the saints of Asia Minor. He lists off the cities he's writing to. In the second letter, Peter's writing for a very different purpose. And I would encourage you, if you haven't read 2 Peter yet, do it. It is a very quick exercise to read through all three chapters. Do it once. Do it many times. Do it a couple times a day for a week. You will learn so much about this book. Peter's writing to churches that are still in danger, but this time the danger's different. The, 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 the danger isn't so much the uh, persecution that they're facing. Instead, it is the infiltration that they're facing, the infiltration of false prophets. And as you read through the three chapters, you're going to see the second chapter is all about the character of these false prophets. The problem isn't so much that they're being slandered or that they're being ridiculed for being Christians, but there's something more sinister going on, whether they really are in the faith and then how to flourish being in the faith. It's not them being disparaged from without, but the danger of deceit from within. See, the church had been infiltrated by false teachers. 2 Peter 2, verse 1, if, while we're in the habit of jumping around, which is a nice thing if you do have a paper Bible, it's a little bit easier. 2 Peter 2, verse 1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Chapter 2 shows that the false teachers were morally bankrupt. They claimed to be spiritual, but their lives were marred by wickedness. And they were luring others to follow them, seducing them to take the easy way of pleasure rather than the hard way of obedience. They preached with their words, and they demonstrated by their example that you can know Christ without obeying Christ. And that was their thing. You can know Christ, but not obey Christ. Their appeal was salvation without the hard work of sanctification. In this letter, Peter has serious warnings for those who claim to know Christ, but don't grow in, in holiness. 2 Peter 1, verses 9 through 10, after Peter gives a, a, a challenge to make every effort and to be diligent, he lists the a, lists a qualities to grow in. And verse one, verse, chapter 1, verse 9 of 2 Peter says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. If you're not growing, you forget who you are. You may not even know if you're saved. You may not be saved. But in verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And we already looked at 2 Peter 
uh, the warning of those uh, who will lead them away by error of unprincipled men and cause them to fall from your own steadfastness. And that, this is what Peter's going for. He wants them to be steadfast. He wants them to know that they're saved, to be certain that they're saved, not just because they can look back and say, I was baptized. Not just because they can say, well, I, I, I remember a time before I was saved and then I prayed a prayer. But right in the current, because of the quality of their lives, they can have the affirmation, the certainty, I am saved. Because they see God's growing them in grace and the knowledge of him. So Peter's plan of protecting these saints isn't to bring them any new teachings. He's not going to bring any radically new doctrines that, that they never knew. But he's going to remind them about what they already knew. And this is going to be encouraging to all of us. He's going to remind them about what they already know. I'm going to read a bunch of verses here. 2 Peter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 2 Peter 1, verse 3 describes more of our knowledge of God and of Jesus his Lord. It says that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. There we see it is a knowing Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about what that kind of knowledge is. And that true knowledge of him, that real knowledge, that, that experiential knowledge of him, that there is grace and peace, and that there is everything we need for life and, and godliness. So if we know him, we are going to be godly. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 through 15, describes again Peter, what he's doing with this letter. Therefore... I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. You guys get this. Verse 13. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. I want you to remember the main things. I want you to remember the gospel. I want you to be gospel-centered. Verse 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. That, 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 that this body, he's, he's, like, he's saying, I know I'm going to die soon. And church history tells us it was most, most likely under uh, uh, the persecution under Emperor Nero that he was killed around the same time that Paul was. He's, he, he's looking at the end of his life saying, saying it's coming close. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to be reminding you. And I'm going to remind you again. And I'm going to remind you again. Verse 15. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. I don't have a lot of time left. So I'm going to be reminding you again and again. 2 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2. Again, this is nothing new here. He's not telling them anything new. He just wants them to remember what they know already about God and his grace. 2 Peter 3, verse 1 and 2. This is now the love of the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter's reminding them of the gospel that they knew. Now, it seems because of what Peter talks about in chapter 3, that the particular error the false teachers were teaching was that Jesus was not going to return. And that because Jesus wasn't going to return, there wasn't going to be a judgment. Because there wasn't going to be a judgment, it didn't matter how they lived. They've already been saved. Everything else is a free pass. 
So that's what chapter 3 is going to be pointing to. Peter's going to be reminding them that Jesus Christ is returning. The letter ends talking about knowledge too. 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Stick to the gospel. Remember the gospel. Grow in the gospel. The gospel should be prompting you to make every effort to grow. That's what knowing God does. Now, this morning, we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2. And we're going to draw three, 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 three implications from the first two verses. From Peter's, how, how, how he introduces them, how he introduces himself and greets them. So that you who have faith in Christ will continue in Christ. And really, we're going to see a little bit in these first two verses of the main themes of, of the book. Or at least some of them. So we're going to draw three, three, three implications from Peter's introduction, verses 1 and 2, so that you who have faith in Christ will continue in Christ. Let's look at 2 Peter 1, verse 1. Look at the first half. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, if you, you notice in your New American Standard Bibles, it says Simon. There's a little one next to it that says that the earliest manuscripts have Simeon. I think the ESV Bibles have Simeon. Most likely, Simeon is the original. You might be like, well, why are we talking about Simeon versus Simon? Simeon, as a name for, for, for Peter, was only used one other time in the New Testament. But it was likely that Simeon was Simon's birth name. It was his Jewish name. Simeon was a Jewish name. Peter went by Simon in Greek-speaking context. As the New Testament was written in Greek, it was natural for him to be called by his Greek name, Simon. But here, Peter refers to himself as Simeon. And really, it's, it's a, a warm touch of authenticity as the aging Simeon, looking forward to his near imminent death. He knows, he knows he's going to go soon. He reminds the predominantly Gentile audience of Asia Minor who he is. That this is the Simeon, though now Peter in Rome, who grew up in Palestine, who grew up in Israel, a Jew, a fisherman by trade, someone who had walked with Jesus and ate with Jesus and listened to Jesus and saw Jesus do miracles. It's that Simeon, it's, it's that used to be Jewish boy. Yes, you all know me as Simon Peter, but my name is really Simeon. I'm a Jew. I was there at the beginning. So just maybe he just brings in a, 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 a note of authenticity there. But Simeon wasn't only Simeon. It's Simon Peter. It's Simeon Peter. He had a new name that was given by Christ. Peter. And we see that in Mark 3.16. It says, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, which means rock. Peter had addressed his first letter as Peter, so it's important. He can't just write Simeon. People may not know who that is, so it's Simon Peter, the same one who wrote that first letter to you, the apostle. Peter continues by pulling out his, 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 his credentials. Excuse me. It's kind of like a, a, uh, a detective knocking on someone's door and pulls out his badge. And what does it say on that badge? Bond servant and apostle. He's saying, 
Look, I'm the real thing. Accept no substitutes. This is important in a letter that is warning against false teachers. The English translation bond servant or, or, or ESV as servant, both miss out something that only the English word slave has. Servant falls short, falls short because servant is a voluntary, a voluntary employment. Someone chooses to be a servant. They're employed for a certain amount of time. But slave is also falls short because you can't say slave, at least in this context, without, without thinking uh, 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 about pre-Civil War slavery in America. So both of those words, servant and slave, both kind of fall short. Slave does have the advantage that slaves were owned, which is true in the ancient world. And we can't paint too, too good of a picture. Uh, slaves could be treated horribly. They had no legal rights. But they could also be a respected part, part of the family. They could be an important manager of, of someone's estate. They could be doctors and teacher and, 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 and artists. So we do want to not lose that idea of slave as being owned, but they were valued. Simon Peter identified himself as a slave of Christ. He belonged to Jesus. He had been bought by Jesus. He submitted to Jesus. He was under the authority of Jesus Christ. And there is humility in being a slave, being owned by someone else. But there's also an honor depending upon to whom you belong. There would have been an honor being a slave of the emperor. There's an honor being a slave of Jesus Christ. Moses and Joshua, Samuel and David were all slaves of God. It's, it's relatively a rarely used term. You can join that in the New Testament with Paul and Timothy, James and Jude and, and Epaphras. They, they were identified as slaves of Christ, that they belonged to him. They were agents of God. They were part of God's household. And it doesn't mean that they weren't brothers with us, but that they had a, a, a and we really are all slaves of Jesus Christ if you are in Christ. But there is something to identifying yourself, I am a slave of Christ. There is an honor there. And Peter wanted to bring that out. It is an authoritative thing to say. It's not just humble. Peter was not only a slave, he was also an apostle. He was also an apostle. The word apostle can simply mean messenger. But the term is used here in its more, te more technical sense of one whom Jesus himself had appointed as his messenger. Someone that Jesus had put, had given the job of communicating his word, of being his representative. Peter speaks about the apostles in 2 Peter 3 verse 2. You should remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Not just by any messenger, but by those particularly called out, set apart by Christ with, with the message of the New Testament. Since Peter was an apostle, this letter was authoritative. This letter is still authoritative for us. As an apostle of Christ, the apostle Peter has the right to tell us what to believe and the right to tell us how to live, right? The apostle tells us what to believe and tells us how to live because this is the apostle of Jesus Christ. To the extent that God's word in our hand reflects the original, it is the inerrant authoritative word of God. And this book here is delivered by the slave of Jesus Christ. Peter's authority comes from the Lord himself the one through whom all things were created. Peter was on the Lord's mission. He was the Lord's representative. 
He had an authority the false prophets who were infiltrating these churches did not have. And so what implication can we take from this first verse? It's not rocket science. We need to listen. It's just one word. We need to listen. We need to listen. Listen to the messengers appointed by Jesus Christ. Listen to these men who who embrace this identity as the slave of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1 verse 16 describes how Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter saw the majesty of Jesus Christ, so listen to him. 2 Peter 1 verse 21, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Peter is one of those men who is not doing this of his own human will, but he is one who has been moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So we need to listen to him. 2 Peter 3, 2, I already read, it's the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, by this Peter. So we need to listen. In this letter, Peter is going to do some pleading. He's going to plead with us to listen to this apostolic witness, to reject any other voices. So if we will continue in Christ, we need to stick to the message of Christ. So you have to reject those today who claim that they hear God speaking. You have to reject those who say that they are receiving revelation from God. Their badge is fake. They are not a prophet. They are not an apostle. They have no authenticity. They have not been sent by Christ. This letter here has been sent by Christ. This, this, the word that God has given us is his word to us, and so we need to listen to it. And so our job is to take this word seriously. Our job is to be persuaded by it, to be convinced of it, to cling to it. Our job is to build your life upon it. Our job is to apply it to own it, to depend upon it. Our job is to stick to it. Our job is to listen to it. Our job is to be so ingesting this book of 2 Peter that it becomes the very blood which pumps through our veins. We have to listen to it. Why? Because Peter was a slave of Jesus Christ. Because Peter was an apostle of Jesus Christ. So you can't make too much of this word. Make 2 Peter yours. 2 Peter will show you there's only two kinds of Christians. Those who fall away and were never saved, and those who grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved. So the first implication is to listen. The second is the second half of verse 1. I'm going to explain the verse first and then we'll look at it. Second half of verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in 1 Peter, Peter identified the the, the saints by their geographical location, you know, those who are scattered across Asia Minor, described them as by their spiritual relationship to the world. They were aliens, exiles, pilgrims. But instead, Peter here describes them in terms of their spiritual blessings. They are those who have received. And the word for received here is to receive something by casting of lots, of lucking out. Really, it's the word of lucking out. 
received. We have lucked out. But now we know that God is not casting dice to see who received and what have they received? This faith. God is not never in eternity past did not cast dice to, you know, or pull names out of a hat to decide who receives this faith. But there's a little bit of that idea in this word here. It's about God appointing us to receive this, this spiritual blessing that we didn't deserve. It's like when you're at a raffle, so you, you get the winning number and half the money's yours. You know, you, you, you're like, oh, but except for with God, we know that's not chance. He appoints it to us. So what have we received? A faith. To those who have received a faith. And most commentators agree that this is not, not, not like the faith. It's not like saying you received the gospel. But instead, is this is the believer's saving faith. This is the, the, the subjective faith, the, the faith that one has in God's revelation of himself, the faith that one has in the gospel. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. That's what Peter's talking about here. Those who have received a faith, those who believe in him, those who have been rescued from the judgment of their sins that they deserved because they've put all of their hope in Jesus Christ, because they have trusted him to take their punishment that they deserved. Those who have that faith, they have received this faith. This faith doesn't come from within. The Bible tells us that the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, and neither can he because they are spiritually discerned. You in your own would never receive this faith. You, you would never have this faith. This faith is appointed to us from God. When a will is read and the family's there, Maybe a, a distant relative might feel lucky to have inherited something. But the person that made the will has done the appointing. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you probably have a sense of, I don't want to say lucky, but how, what grace of God that I would believe this. I would have never believed this on my own, but now this is the most dear thing to me in the universe. That's because God has appointed you. The person who wrote the will has appointed you to receive this blessing. Faith is a gift from God. We've received this faith, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Simon Peter knew this. In Matthew 16, verses 16 to 17, Simon answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You, you are the fulfillment of Israel's promises. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter knew where faith came from. He knew where his faith in Jesus Christ came from. He knew why he believed and Judas didn't, why most of the Jews of the day didn't, because he had been appointed this faith. He had received a faith. To believe in Christ has to be granted to us. But Paul says this in Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake to believe in him. Peter describes this faith more. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, or the ESV has, of equal standing. And it's really talking about the value of this faith. There's only one kind of faith. 
And Peter confirms that the Gentiles of, uh, 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 of Asia Minor, if that's who he was writing to, that they share an equal faith with the Jewish apostles. That those who had heard the testimony secondhand share a faith with those who saw it firsthand. That those maybe who are second-generation Christians have the same faith of those who are first-generation Christians. The quality of their faith wasn't different. There is not, and we have to get rid of thinking this, there is not a particularly effective or fruitful first-generation faith in Christ that is then watered down to the second generation. There is one kind of faith in Jesus Christ. It is of equal standing, of equal value. And it's of equal value because its origin is the, the same. It is in God. It is the same faith of those who are eyewitnesses of his majesty. The faith that Peter had is the faith that we have. It is the faith that Paul had. It is the faith that those early martyrs had. The faith that the reformers had. The faith that the Puritans had. The faith that our missionary heroes had. It is that same faith. It's of equal value. On the other hand, the faith of the false prophets, it was not of the same value. It was not of the same standing. That faith did not result in obedience. And there is one kind of faith, and it is a life-transforming faith. It is an obedient faith. It is a making-every-effort faith. And we'll see that as we go through chapter 1. A faith that does not result in obedience does not come from God. You might look at a period of your life where you're not seeing much obedience. But, but over a period of time, a faith that does not result in obedience does not come from God. It's not of an equal standing to this faith that the apostles had and that the believers had. Now, Peter says, this faith, to those who have received a faith of the same kind, the same standing as ours, by or through, by means of, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of God and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So righteousness. Wayne Grudem defines righteousness. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. He always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So God is right in himself. There's, there's no other outside standard of right to which you can judge God by. God is right and does right. He is impeccable in his actions. He is completely blameless. And God's righteousness demands judgments of sinners. God's righteousness demands punishment. He would not be right to let those who've sinned go unpunished. But God's righteousness, his blameless activity, is also a saving righteousness. It is not just a condemning righteousness, though it is that. It is also a saving righteousness. And that is the miracle of the gospel, that God has this saving righteousness, this, this, this amazing plan to rescue sinners by punishing his son in our place. And that is this righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek is clear in this verse. The Greek could not be clearer in this verse. Peter is calling Jesus Christ both God and Savior. There, there, there's, there's no other solid Greek way to look at this verse. Now, it, if any of you have studied some, some Greek and you have questions about that, we can go over that more in, in person. But the Greek here is explicit. 
Later, and four times, Peter's going to describe Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's going to say, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That Greek is the same Greek as here. Lord, no one doubts, oh, Lord and Savior must be two different people. No, Peter is saying the Lord and Savior is Jesus Christ, and he's saying here, Jesus is the God and Savior. It couldn't be more clear. And we're going to see even in verse 2. Peter knows how to use Greek to distinguish between God the Father and God the Son. He says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And there in verse 2, the second half, the Greek is very clear. He's distinguishing between God and Jesus. But the Greek is very clear in verse 1. God and Savior Jesus Christ is the same person. Peter's focus here isn't the Father's righteousness in election. He's not just saying that, and, 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 and some say, okay, those who've received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness, by the, by the fairness of our God. And that's how many commentators read this. But I think that's wrong. Because it's not just God, it's God and Savior Jesus Christ. And in Scripture, election is not the work of Jesus Christ, it is the work of the Father. So I think we have to push further here to see what, how does this faith come by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. God appoints faith to whom he will by the Son's righteousness, especially his righteousness in salvation. It is through Jesus' perfect, faultless, blameless, saving activity that we receive faith. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, to take the punishment of sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Without Christ's righteousness in life, without Christ's righteousness in death, we would have no faith. We would have no one to believe in. We would have no one to hope in. Our belief, our faith, our hope is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God the man allows you to be saved by faith. And so what, what implication can we have of this? I think the second word we can remember is we need to marvel. We need to marvel. We need to listen to the apostle. We need to listen to God's word. And we just need to marvel. We need to have wonder. We need to be in awe. We need to marvel at the faith that you have been given. If you are here this morning and you are in Jesus Christ, you need to marvel because God has appointed to you faith. You are here this morning, believer, not because your spouse dragged you. You are here not because you want to be a good example for your kids. You are here because if you are in Christ because of the faith that you have, the faith that has been given to you by God, that has been appointed to you by God. This faith is not because of your wisdom. It's not because of your goodness. It's not because of your intelligence. It's not because of your Christian upbringing or your lack of a Christian upbringing. It is because God has appointed that you receive this faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This faith is God's gift to you, so we need to marvel in it. You need to be amazed. Why would he save me? Why would he give me this faith? There's so many other people he could have given faith, but he's given me this faith. And he wants these, 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 these brothers and sisters he's writing to, he wants them to marvel at this. To not forget this. 
Because he's given you this faith is why you've not joined some of your families in rejecting God. It's why you've not joined those in your school rejecting God. It's because of the faith that he has given to you. And this faith would be a futile faith. It would be an empty faith. Could you imagine believing if Christ weren't righteous? But because he is righteous, he can be the sacrifice for our sins. Because he is righteous, he obeyed the Father. Because he is righteous, he can take the punishment of sins on our behalf. So we need to marvel at our inclusion that we believe as the apostles did. That God has been, been keeping his church going and he keeps adding to it. What a privilege. Peter wants them to have some awe here. Now let's look at verse 2, and then we'll look at the third implication after that. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter's greeting is much more than a greeting. He's not just saying hi. There are good Greek words and Greek ways for doing that. It's really a prayer here. And it's a prayer that they would enjoy the reality of grace and peace. And some of you know that, 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 that lots of New Testament epistles start with this kind of thing. But we need to make sure we don't get old to this. You, we could have a whole sermon just on grace and peace. These words are, are precious words. The fact of grace that we receive God's favor that we could never deserve. That we would never deserve that faith that he would be perfectly just to have all of us outside of, of hearing his word for eternity. Outside of, 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 of any faith. And that would have been just, but he didn't. He had grace. And that, that, that grace saves us and that grace enables us. It is a transforming grace. It is a grace that allows us to escape judgment, but that also enables us to obey. So he says, grace to you, favor to you, and peace. And peace is the state of this blessing. Grace brings us into the state of peace, the, 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 the state of having been reconciled to God. It's not a feeling of peace any more than grace is a feeling of grace. Peace is the end of hostility and the beginning of flourishing. Right? When there's war, it's just devastation. But at, when the war is done, things can flourish. And that's really pe the peace that we have now with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which is just the beginning of the eternal peace that is going to follow. It's, it's the flourishing of those who are right with God, regardless of external circumstances, regardless of how rough a week we had. So Peter prays that their experience of grace, that their experience of peace would be multiplied, that it would be abundant, that it would be plentiful. Grace and peace is the air that God's people breathe. It is the sun that they warm themselves in. It is the water they swim in. It's the zip code that they live in. We live in grace and peace if we are in Jesus Christ. This is our whole way of being. It is one of God's favor and of flourishing. But grace and peace don't exist apart from the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I've already said this. The, the, the Greek couldn't be any clearer that Peter means that Jesus Christ is God and Savior in verse 1. And the Greek couldn't be any clearer in verse 2 that he's separating God and of Jesus our Lord. But even as he does that, Lord is only a title not, not only, but so often in Scripture, 
a title that refers to God. Several times in, in 2 Peter, God the Father is referred to as the Lord. And Jesus, God the Son, is referred to as Lord. Lord is often a term of deity. And so Peter distinguishes because while one God, God is, there's one God in three persons. And he distinguishes here that this knowledge is of God and of Jesus our Lord, of God the Father and God the Son. Now, the word for, 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 for knowledge here is, is epignosis, excuse me. And it's different from another Greek word that Peter uses as well, which is, which is gnosis. I should just put the words on the board for you. Uh, and it can be difficult to distinguish the meaning of these two Greek words. The, 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 the epignosis word is a more intense form. And really, these words can be used almost interchangeably. So, so we got to be careful making too much out of them. But there does seem to be some, some distinctions we can tease out. This, this knowledge, this, this knowledge in verse 1, I mean in verse 2, is the knowledge perhaps that follows conversion. It's the knowledge of one who has been awakened to God. It's the knowledge of one who's, who's come to know. It's not just kind of a, a textbook knowledge, although that knowledge can be true, right? And that knowledge is good. In fact, he's going to tell us we need to grow in that knowledge. That knowledge is not bad. But he's making a distinction here that this is a knowledge that doesn't stay in the text. It's a knowledge that affects the heart and the actions. It's maybe the difference of knowing that fire's hot and having experienced that fire's hot, of falling into the fire. It's, it's to know something as it truly is, or to know someone as they truly are. And this is why the New American Standard doesn't do it here, it will do it later, it refers to this as true knowledge. It's, they're, 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 they're trying to get some deeper into this saving knowledge, or this somehow effective knowledge, this knowledge that does something. It is true knowledge of God the Father and His Son. That true knowledge, knowing God as He truly is. Knowing God in His attributes. Knowing Christ in His mercy. That is the garden in which grace and peace flourish. So it's not just saying, what things can I write down that are true about God? What things can I write down that are true about Jesus Christ? It, it, it is getting, by God's grace, through His Spirit, that reality to be your life, to live like those things are true. And that is where grace and peace flourish. And that brings us to our third word here, and it is to continue, to continue. We need to listen to God as the apostle. We need to marvel that we've received this faith of equal standing. And we need to continue. We need to continue in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And that's what the book of 2 Peter is all about. Continuing in that knowledge. Letting that knowledge dominate our lives. Do you, do you want God's favor? Do you want grace from God? Do you want peace from God? Do you want this true spiritual health? Then you must continue in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. When you were saved, your eyes were, were opened to God's, to God's devastating holiness. You were undone. You saw God and his holiness and you knew that you were sinful. And you knew that you deserved destruction. When, when your eyes were opened to his uncompromised mercy, 
He's merciful, but he never compromises his mercy. His mercy towards you came at the immense cost of his son. When you, when you got this, this mercy, when you got his awesome beauty, that's, that's where grace and peace grows. It's by having that knowledge our knowledge, and we need to continue in that. When you recognized who Christ was, when you were compelled to go to Christ, when you saw him as the good shepherd, when you feasted upon him as the bread of life, when you were, when your darkness was dispelled by the light of the world, when you saw him as lamb slain and as sun risen and as Lord exalted, that's, that's when you first tasted of grace. That's when you first enjoyed peace with God. Grace and peace are to be found in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And Peter doesn't tell them anything new. And in the whole book, he doesn't tell them anything new. He, he doesn't come with some, some, some secret hidden thing that no one's ever been told before. But it is true knowledge. It's not just textbook knowledge. It's not just something that you can read. It's something that has saved you. It's saving knowledge. It's transforming knowledge. And that's really a major key of the book. Saving knowledge is transforming knowledge. The false prophets did not have saving knowledge. God's people will have saving knowledge. Grace and peace are to be found in this knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So do you want grace and do you want this blessing of peace, of this flourishing? It's found in God's revelation of himself and it's found at the throne of Jesus. It's found when Jesus is your Lord. Grace and, there is no grace and peace apart from having Jesus your Lord. In 2 Peter, Peter's going to call his audience, not to something new, but to continue in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So will you continue in the gospel that you know? Not just as a systematic body of truth, not just a creed you can recite, not just a, a catechism answer, but in this life-changing reality. Today, will you leave committed? I'm going to listen to this apostle. I'm going to listen to what God says. I'm going to marvel at the faith that I have received, and I'm going to continue in this knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's what we're going to keep doing as we go through 2 Peter by God's grace. Let's pray. Now, Father, we who know you are humbled that we have received faith. And Lord, you would have been right uh, to leave all of us outside, all of us outside of your grace you didn't need to communicate any of that grace to, to us, Lord, but that was your eternal plan. And you have appointed that we would have faith in your Son. Lord, we are so humbled by that, and we are thankful. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would help us to continue in this, in this true knowledge, in this effective knowledge, in this life-changing knowledge, in this put on new glasses and see you in a new way kind of knowledge. Lord, I pray, Father, that, that, that you would help us to fix our vision. Lord, we're not talking about getting saved, Lord, but we do want to see you as you are, and we confess that we can become 
almost impossibly dead to you at times. That we can begin our days without thinking about your grace. That we can start doubting your goodness. That we can think we can live independently. We get confused thinking that we don't need a good shepherd. And that the bread of, of, of television and money will somehow sustain us when we need your son, the bread of life. Oh, Father, I pray for your saints for your people, that we would continue in this knowledge. And I pray, Lord, that we would, we would flourish, Lord, that we would grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would know him truly, that we'd be transformed, and that you'd protect us from this, from this kind of faith that the false prophets are going to advocate in this book. It's the faith of many, many so-called Christians, maybe even some here this morning, a faith which is distant and has no effect on our day-to-day -day lives. Father, we do pray for those who might be here this morning, um, who think that they have uh, the Christian box checked, that they have some kind of conversion experience, Lord, but their lives have not been transformed. I pray, Lord, that this book would be a wake-up call uh, to them. I pray, Lord, that they would see that they have a need to make their calling and election sure, that they would be convinced that when you save someone, you change them. I pray also, Lord, that it would be an encouraging book, Lord, to, to those who can be too, uh, too, 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 too introspective at times and too burdened, in a, in a sense, by, by every sin that they forget your grace, uh, Lord, that they would keep remembering this true knowledge of Jesus, our Lord, uh, who died in our place. And Lord, that is uh, that knowledge we want to celebrate as, as we come and, and take communion together. In Jesus' name, amen.